Today our sermon comes from Exodus 4, verses 18 to 31. This is the word of the Lord. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking you Seeking your life or dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place, on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let, so he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood. Because of the circumcision. Then Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God, and he kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped him. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thank you. That is dangerous and uh, foreboding for a very difficult text and a very difficult sermon. So uh, let us pray one more time for the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you so much for speaking to us through your word. Thank you, Lord God, that you revealed yourself to us, Father, and help us now as we go before you once again before a very difficult passage, Father. Help us be attentive. Help us focus, Father. Help us see the text not as something merely ancient and old and therefore lacking relevance for us, Father, but help us see, Lord God, that if it's in your Bible, if it's in your word, it's useful for us. It's, it's beautiful, Father, for us, and it will be equipping to us as we proceed on the way back to you. So, Father, help us and help me be clear and apply your gospel here in our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, uh, we're continuing our series today on the life of Moses, going through chapter by chapter through the the early, the first half at least of the book of Exodus here. And we come to a very perplexing passage here in Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 to 31. We're going to be closely going through this passage. And this is, as a a pastor said, one of the most obscure passages in all of the Old Testament. And I've been joking with the staff, every time it's an obscure passage, I'm up. So here we are. Um, We've got a lot of weird things going on in this passage. It seems almost disjointed and Uh, A lot of non-Christian scholars actually take a look at this passage and they argue that some editor must have tampered with the text. There's some editorial mistakes here. There's breaks in the narrative that doesn't seem to make sense. It's just a really, really difficult passage. I mean, you're going to see things here that seem to to come out of nowhere. I mean, 
First of all, there's the theological problems, it seems to me, that, uh, of Pharaoh being hardened by God, right? God is sending Moses over back to Pharaoh, and instead of simply softening Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would let his people go, God, here in this passage, which we're going to see, will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let the people go, at least until 10 more plagues come. Not only that, there's this emergency circumcision by Zipporah. My goodness, what's that all about? Um, you know, Tazar last week preached such a great sermon about how God was for Moses, God was here to equip Moses so that Moses would go and be this great deliverer and God would equip him with Aaron and then now he's going to kill Moses? That seems like an odd narrative break. It's almost like a cut scene that doesn't really belong. It's almost like you're watching a movie and then there's this weird side quest here that takes place. We, we don't exactly know what's going on there, at least at first. So this passage is just filled with seemingly disjointed scenes, vignettes almost, of cutscenes that are compiled together, but I do think that there is one thread that I hope I could show you here today. The thread that is in this passage, amidst the difficulties in this passage, is, is the simple fact that God cares deeply, deeply about not just the calling with which God has called you to do, the things that God wants you to do, but also the kind of character that you have to be in order to carry out that calling. Here, God is showing us that just because God is calling Moses to a certain great task, it doesn't mean that Moses' character could simply be swept under the rug. God was not just committed to Moses obeying God's great calling, but also God is committed to forming Moses into the kind of character that would be in line with that calling. All right? So three things I want to point us to in this passage, this difficult passage today. First, the problem with God's sons. Second, the problem facing God's sons. And third, the word of God who is God's son. And so we're going to see the theme of sonship and fatherhood is weaved into this text and one of the most important things about this passage is among other important things. So bear with me as we go through these points. It's going to feel a little bit like a theological lecture sometimes, hopefully not too much, but bear with me because this is a difficult passage and work with me. So let's take a look at the problem with God's sons. The first point here, the problem with God's sons. Moses, even though he was just called by God and told by God that he's going to do all these amazing signs, he's going to proclaim the word of God to Pharaoh to let the people go, Moses here, we're going to see, doesn't really live up to that. There are some character issues with Moses that God has to deal with first. And the character issues of Moses has to do with who he is and how he's become within his family. Look at verse 18 here. One of the first problems that we see with the Son of God here, Moses. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. All right, so let's pause there. Notice something about this particular passage, right? Moses is going back to his wife's father, Jethro. And notice here how benign or how innocuous, how, how theologically empty his reasons are for going back to Egypt. Look at what he says to Jethro. Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive, right? But you just read almost two chapters worth of God showing miracle after miracle to Moses, God revealing himself to Moses. He is who he is, right? The name of God. And God commissioning Moses to go back to Egypt, not simply to see whether his brothers are alive, but to deliver God's people out of this tyrannical ruler so that they might serve him in a different land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And God is invoking the name of Abraham. And God is invoking his, his great name, right? So... Moses, almost as if he forgot all of that, comes to his father-in-law, 
and strips that away from all theological content and simply says, please let me go back to Egypt so that I could see my, if my brothers are still alive. No, you can imagine, right, the, that awkward situation that Moses is in. One of the most terrifying things I've ever had to do is um, ask my wife, who was then my girlfriend's dad, whether I could date her, right? If, if you are a son here and you're dating somebody, that's a very good thing for you to do, but it's one of the most terrifying things you ever have to go through. Now, you could sympathize with Moses here because he's not just asking this father to let his daughter go, but he's asking Jethro, right, to make sure that, to permit him and his whole family to go to Egypt, the most tyrannical land there right now, and to rescue this people. And not only that, Moses is supposed to tell him that it was God who commissioned him, that he was his great deliverer. It's really terrifying. I can't imagine going to my father-in-law saying, I'm God's deliverer, and I will take your daughter with me. You know, it's, it's, it's something that if Moses were to tell the full truth of, it would be risking shame, it would be risking his dignity, it would be risking everything with his father, right? There's something fearful, therefore, of going back to his father-in-law and telling him the whole truth. So Moses strips the truth. In other words here, Moses, because of his cowardice, because of his fearfulness, went back to Jethro and didn't exactly tell him the truth didn't tell him the kind of danger that he was about to be in, the danger that he was going to put his daughter under. In other words, Moses became kind of deceptive to his own father-in-law precisely because he was fearful, he was anxious. He did not invoke the name of God. And by the way, Jethro, remember, was a priest. He was a priest that you could trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham, as we saw a few weeks ago, right? So Jethro was a believer in Yahweh. He, out of all people, would have understood if Moses had invoked all of the theology behind his, his mission here. But even to him, Moses was fearful, and therefore he was a, a bad son-in-law. He was deceptive. He was a bad son to Jethro, his father-in-law. Not only that, let's go to verse 24 to 26. I know the passage all of you are dying to know about. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of their circumcision. Now, this has a whole host of questions behind it, right? There's ambiguities in this passage. First of all, why would God want to kill Moses after God had just commissioned Moses to do this great thing? And also, what's up with this circumcision? Why would a circumcision rescue Moses? Why would a circumcision mean that Moses would now be safe? And, and the Hebrew is even more weird because in verse 24, when it says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death, the word him there doesn't really have a reference, right? It could be Moses. It could be the son. So interpreters, again, are pretty befuddled by this. They're pretty confused. But here's what I think is going on, and we can only guess but here's what I think is going on here. Moses, at this point in this passage, I think what this passage is communicating to us is basically he has left his Israelite identity and he has not taken up the role of being a Hebrew father to his family. Moses had not raised up his son according to the ways of the Abrahamic covenant. Moses had not circumcised his son according to the commands of God to Abraham, his forefather. So in other words, it seems to me that what's happening in this passage is Moses had left his Israelite identity. In chapter 2, when he was kicked out of 
Egypt when he was a wanted man, he thought to himself that perhaps he's no longer considered as a Hebrew. His people no longer accepted him. They've seen him kill somebody. They distrusted him. So they, he no longer wanted to raise his family according to his Hebrew Israelite ways. He wanted to forget about it. And that's why he didn't want to circumcise his children. And why would his circumcision, the circumcision of his son now by Zipporah, why would that rescue Moses? Well, remember again what circumcision was meant to signify. The circumcision pointed back to Genesis 15 and 17. Remember what God said to Abraham. I'm going to have a relationship with you and all of your descendants. What will be the mark of that relationship? Well, circumcision. And what was the circumcision assigned to? It was the fact that God had to cut animals in two and God had to walk through it, communicating that if anybody violated this relationship, they had to be cut in half just like this animal was. And it also communicated that for God to have a relationship with his people, there had to be a substitutionary sacrifice. In other words, God cannot have a relationship with sinners unless there was an atonement of blood, unless someone else or something else died in the sinner's place so that God could, have, could dwell once again with sinners. And those animals represented that. And if you were circumcised, it means that you benefited from that substitute. It means that you're basically saying, that animal that was provided by God died in my place, and so I can have a relationship with God. And this circumcision, the cutting off of this flesh, is a mark that I partake in the cutting off of these animals, right? And it also pointed forward, because later on, God will tell Moses, anyone who's not circumcised cannot partake in the Passover meal where there was an animal killed on their behalf, cannot be a benefactor, cannot, cannot benefit from this animal that died on their behalf, right? So in other words, if you weren't circumcised, your blood was still on your head. You don't yet benefit from the substitute of blood from the animal. And Moses didn't do this for his children. It's almost as if Moses is saying, that was the older ways, I'm no longer a Hebrew. I'm not gonna raise up my children in the ways of the Abrahamic covenant. I'm not gonna raise up my children according to the word of God. And here's the significance here. Here's why I think this specific weird scene is in this passage, right? God is saying this. Moses, I know I've called you to do this great thing. You're gonna be this deliverer. You're gonna be this hero to the Israelites because of my power and my name will be upon you. I will be with you. I'll accompany you. But don't you dare believe that this great calling with which I've called you to, this great task, this great mission that I've called you to, means that you could use it to justify being lazy with your own family. Don't you dare believe, don't you, don't you now justify your laziness in your private lives just because you can now appeal and say, I've got this great mission of God, I can now be lazy and I can do whatever I want with my family. God cares just as much for your private intimate lives, how you deal with your children just as much as he cares about this great thing that he wants you to do. A couple years ago in Scotland, there was a minister who has one of the biggest preaching ministries in all of the highlands in the Scottish world. And he would preach multiple sermons a week and he would write a lot of books. But suddenly, he hung himself in his room in an act of suicide. And so a lot of people wondered what happened and it came out during that week that he had been committing serial adultery with multiple women around the several towns that he was preaching in. And in private correspondences, apparently, he would communicate that he would feel terrible, he would feel terrible again and again and again about everything that he ever did, and then he would preach a great sermon. And then he said, so maybe God is still for me after all. 
I'm doing this amazing thing for the Lord, so my private life, that's just going to be swept under the rug. Here's what God is saying here, in, including this little scene here. Moses, you've been called by God to do this amazing thing for him, but God cares just as much about how you deal with your families back at home. And the profound thing about this is that when his son here, who wasn't circumcised by Moses, technically this whole family doesn't partake in the covenant of Abraham, right? But instead of going to the son to punish him or going to the wife as a poorer to punish him, God didn't seek them out. God sought Moses out, the father. You know, in other words, the father had the primary responsibility for the spiritual nurturing of the family. There's no scenario in the Bible where God comes and looks for the wife. Where have you been? Where have you taken care of the family? He looks to the husband, just as he looked for Adam when Eve ate the fruit first. And you know this deep inside within your heart. You know that men, you have the primary responsibility for this, but our temptation is just to be passive. Simply let the reins go and not do the responsibilities that have been given to us. But this text, along with other passages in Scripture, tells us that fathers, you have an amazing responsibility to raise your children up in the Lord. Circumcise them in the old covenant. Baptize them in the new covenant. Raise them up according to the word of God. Because what you do within your family counts just as much as what you do out there. And you can't say before everyone else, you can't sacrifice your family on the altar of your ministry, on the altar of your work. You can't say, because my work is this great, it justifies my family falling apart. Fathers, you have an amazing responsibility. In our day and age in an egalitarian culture, we want to say that everybody is equal. And yes, everybody is equal. But we all know deep inside that there are different roles, right? In Bali, just yesterday, uh, I saw this wild dog on the side of the streets, and I joked and I pushed Indita, my wife. I was like, you go first. <laughs> and she was like, what kind of man are you? <laughs> and, you know, we all laughed, and I said, you know, we're all equal, you know. But you know deep inside, you know deep inside that if a wild beast, well, maybe not a wild beast, we're in Jakarta, right? So if a, wild, if a robber comes into your house, and you say to your wife, you go get him. <laughs> You're not a man. At least not worth one, right? And, and here's what this passage is saying. When Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin to touch Moses, that's verse 25, she's playing the role and obeying on Moses' behalf. She's saying, you didn't obey God, so I have to do it. And that's why she got really angry at Moses, right? You bridegroom of blood. In other words, because of what you had done, this blood was on my hands, and blood should have came to us. So I had to do what you failed to do, Moses. And deep inside, you're supposed to feel this intuition that this wasn't supposed to be. It was Moses' responsibility to do this, not Zipporah, not the wife. And just as today, you feel the innate intuition that men should bear this responsibility, and men don't, therefore, be passive. Raise your children well. And this is not just in the context of your families, but older men here, if you see anybody who's younger, mentor them. See your life as an example for other people. See that you have huge responsibilities upon you. People will look to you to be the bearer of God's word. And God will hold you to account for everything that you do. And that's absolutely terrifying, men. But by us doing this, we can show to the world the kind of God that he is, right? So 
That's why I think this is happening here. This is why the scene is in place here. God is saying to us and to Moses, just because God is calling you to this great mission doesn't mean that you get to be a bad father, doesn't mean that you get to be a son-in-law. That is terrible either, right? So now, so God is showing to Moses all of his character inadequacies, but not only do we see problems with God's sons here, Moses here being a bad father and being a bad son, we also see a problem facing God's sons. And this is in verse 21 to 23. Look at what it says here. And there's a second point. The problem facing God's sons. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, say, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that have put you in your power. It's going to be significant later, right? If Moses isn't able to obey God's word and communicate all the truth to his father-in-law, how is he going to do all the signs of God and all the words of God before Pharaoh? But I will harden his heart. And this is surprising. This is what God says. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Look at what it's saying here. God is saying to Moses, you have to do everything that I'm supposed to tell you. But what you're about to do, even as you're obeying me, even as you're obeying God, will be absolutely difficult because I'm going to prolong the time of testing, the time that you have to obey me before Pharaoh because Pharaoh is not going to let the people go. Not just because Pharaoh's heart is hardened, but because in verse 21, right, it says here, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And in the next few chapters, as plague after plague, 10 plagues, God pours upon Egypt. There was a plague of the frogs and the gnats and the Nile River turning into blood. Again and again, the pastor is going to say nine more times that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, this faces us with a little bit of a theological conundrum because in verse 19 of chapter 3, if you look back here, chapter 3, verse 19, it says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. In other words, God is saying, unless I do something, Pharaoh will not let you go. It's almost as if there, God is saying, Pharaoh is hardening his own heart, and I have to do something to stop Pharaoh from hardening his own heart. So Pharaoh has responsibility for it. But, as we saw in chapter 4, verse 21, as in our passage, right? It says there that God is the one hardening his heart. So which is it? Is Pharaoh hardening his own heart, or is God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Right? And here, in this little conundrum, we have all of the theological debates in the last 2,000 years, right? There's one side of the camp, let's call it the puppeteer theology. Pup, the puppeteer theology would be, simply say that God was hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh was a mere puppet, a mere robot. And God was plucking all the strings and Pharaoh would simply be this puppet that would do everything that God does no matter what happens mechanically. But that would get rid of the significant passages where it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh had responsibility, in other words, to let the people go. But then there's the other side of the camp that talks about God as if he was just a mere spectator the spectator view that simply says that God views and knows what Pharaoh is about to do, but doesn't do anything. It's all purely Pharaoh's doing. Notice here in the first camp, they're, they're emphasizing one set of passages about Pharaoh hardening God's, sorry, God hardening Pharaoh's heart and ignoring all the passages about Pharaoh's responsibility and hardening his own heart. And then there's the other camp who emphasizes only those passages that Pharaoh hardened his own heart and God not hardening his heart. All right. 
in either polar sides, this binary, right? You have one set of passages denying another set of passages, and one set of passages denying the other set of passages. But you see, if we take the Bible seriously, when we come across texts of passages that seem to contradict one another, we need to hold them both in tension. And so much of theology is simply that. It's preserving the mysteries of the Bible, acknowledging that the Bible presents two sets of texts that you can't fully understand, but at the same time, you have to hold both in order for you to be orthodox, in order for you to actually be biblical, right? God is one and three. <laughs> How does that work? In the baptism, we see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit acting almost separately, but we know that God is one, so he never acts separately. The, the Bible is clear about that. So God is fully one, fully three. And to be orthodox, you need to hold both together. And in this passage, we see that Pharaoh was responsible for everything that he did because there were real secondary causes there, but God was still the primary cause of all the things that happened, right? You see, friends, your relationship with God, and I've mentioned this analogy before, your relationship with God it's not like a puppet on the first floor and a puppeteer on the third floor tugging away at you mechanically. God is not in the same order of being as you are. Your relationship with God is more like Romeo's relationship with Shakespeare. Within the narrative of the passage, Romeo had real secondary cause level reasons for doing what he did. He was responsible for it. But Shakespeare wrote it all. God is not in the same order of being as you are. And so, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, look back there in your statement of faith. Notice the almost uh, fixated way that the author is here. Make sure that you feel the paradoxes and you feel all the tensions. The Westminster Confession of Faith was written not so that you could comprehend everything the Bible says, but so that you would confess it, even when you don't understand it. Look at what it says here in Article 1. Just look at this brief article. God from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. And you would think if it's free, it's not unchangeable. If it's unchangeable, it's not free. But in his own will, freely and unchangeably, ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Whatsoever comes to pass, including evil, you would think. But yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. Notice how almost... OCD-like the others are, in making sure that we see that, that, that this is a mystery. They're not interested in getting rid of the mystery so that God could fit into our final minds. They're interested in making sure that they enlarge the mysteries here. God ordains everything, but the will of the creature is still free. God ordains everything, but he's still not the author of sin. But in God's ordaining everything, the contingency of second causes are not taken away, but they are rather established, right? So everything that Pharaoh does is under God's control, but yet he's still responsible for his sin. And that, my friends, is the heart of the biblical mystery of predestination and human free will. God predestines all things, but yet human beings are totally responsible. And what's the purpose of this? God is saying here to Moses, everything that you're about to do Everything that you're about to, to, to do in my name and obey in my place, right? Every, all the hardships that you're about to face, everything that Pharaoh's about to throw at you, I know exactly what's going to happen because I'm behind it all. So don't be afraid, God is saying, until God is going to threaten Pharaoh to let the people go lest the firstborn sons of all of Egypt are killed. Look at what it says there 
in verse 22 to 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is a foreshadowing and a prediction of what's going to happen at the 10th plague. God is going to send all these plagues to ensure that Pharaoh would let his people go. But it's not until the 10th plague when God finally wipes out every son in Egypt, every firstborn male in Egypt, that Pharaoh will finally let his people go. God is telling Moses, I have this. Nothing will take me by surprise. It's until this 10th plague that your people will finally be let go. So obey me, no matter what. There's a principle here that we'll come back to later, a son for a son. Egypt's sons will be taken away so that Israel, who is my son, will be freed. So the problem facing God's sons, Moses, God has it under his control. He is not taken by surprise by any of it. So Moses, go and obey this no matter what. And so then we come to our final point, the third and last point, the word of God who is God's son. The word of God who is God's son. I want us to note now verse 27 onwards, the closing of this chapter. It says here this, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had been sent him to speak and all the signs they had commanded to him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Notice the transformation that Moses had to have undergone, right? In verse 18, you see this cowardly Moses facing Jethro, his father-in-law, telling him half-truths. But then suddenly in verse 27 and 28, there's this emphasis that Moses told Aaron all the words, not half-truths, but every single word that God had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then almost as if the narrator doesn't want you to miss this, he repeats this again. When Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel, verse 30 it says, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did all the signs. We see this transformation of Moses being a cowardly person who resorted to deception to make sure that he doesn't look bad, to Moses communicating everything that he needed to communicate to Aaron, the fullness of it. And everything that Moses communicated to Aaron Aaron and Moses communicates now to the elders of Israel. Everything. And when this happened, the product is amazing. Verse 31. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Friends, the only way that people will get to worship the Lord is not if the church reduces itself to gimmicks and other ways, man-made ways and wisdoms of getting people to become attracted. It's not when the church produces programs and, and lights and sounds and facades in order for people to see us attractive. Rather, the church produces worship only when we continually communicate all of the words of God and all of his deeds to his people. Only the word of God in its fullness can produce worship. And that's the purpose and the mission of the church. For us never to serve away from it, but simply to proclaim the word of God so that people would see him and would worship him. And Moses 
could only do that after he had been assured again and again that all of the difficulties you're about to face, Moses, is going to be taken care of because God is in control. And Moses, you have been atoned for. You see, God had to work with a sinful human being like Moses so that Moses could communicate the word of God because Moses was a bad son. Moses was not a faithful communicator. Moses was fickle. Moses was a coward. Moses did not have his house in order. But there's a greater son who would come many, many years later. And this greater son isn't just going to communicate all of the words of God to you. This greater son is the word of God himself. This greater son isn't just going to be a representative for the word of God to come to you but he is the eternal word of God. And God isn't going to call him into Egypt, but he's going to call him out of Egypt and not going to rescue his people from an earthly ruler, but he's going to rescue his people from the ruler of the spiritual realm, the prince of darkness himself. And you see, friends, when Moses was sent back here to Egypt so that he would rescue these people from an earthly ruler, and God was assuring him that God would harden Pharaoh only up till a point, and then finally Pharaoh would let his people go. When God sent his only son on earth, God knew that the rulers of this world would be hardened not up till a point, but until the very end. You see, Moses risked his life over 10 plagues to rescue his people, but Jesus gave his life because God had let Satan reign over him and put him not merely in a dire situation, but put him on a cross. Jesus Christ died because God gave him over to Satan to be tempted and try finally to put to death. And God knew that this time it would be a son for his son. But it would no longer be the Egyptian sons for the Israelite sons, but it will be the son of God in the place of sinners so that both Egyptian sons and Israelite sons could now be let go from their slavery and to sin and to worship this God now. God's son for your son. God's son for all of us. And not only that, Jesus is the true and greater bridegroom of blood because he was also the true and greater Zipporah. He obeyed in our place. When we failed to obey in our place, he obeyed and took on the penalty that we deserved. So he was a bridegroom of blood, not for his son's blood, not for another's blood, but simply of his own blood. Jesus was the true word of God who became the true son. And friends, this is the message of Christianity. And again and again, even in the most obscure passages like this, don't see passages like this as mainly stories about Moses or stories about yourself. These passages are supposed to point you to Jesus, who's the greater son who died for you, to Jesus, who's the greater Zipporah who obeyed in your place, to Jesus, the bridegroom of blood, who died not for another person's blood, but for his own sake. For his blood was given unto you. He was the true word of God who obeyed so that you might become now servants of the living God. Rest in this gospel. Let us pray. Father, it is a difficult passage that we had to cover today, Father, but with your spirit, we can see that even in the most difficult passages of Scripture, Jesus is being proclaimed. Jesus is being foreshadowed. So help us now, Father, see that Jesus was the plan all along, that he is the greater mystery. The infinite God took on finite flesh to be the greater Moses, to deliver us not from an earthly ruler, but from the tyrannical rule of our sin and Satan. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.